Amen. Praise the Lord. I'd like for you, if you will, to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture. Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter 6. Luke chapter 4 and Mark chapter 6. I'm going to, um, you may be familiar with these openings and you may think you know that, which way I'm going to go, but I'm going to approach some things from a little different angle this evening. These uh, two accounts, Luke 4 and Mark 6, tell us the story of Jesus in his own hometown of Nazareth. Uh, they, uh, they give us different bits of information about Jesus' first time there. Jesus has just entered his earthly ministry, uh, entered into his earthly ministry. He's just been baptized by John in the Jordan River. He's been tempted of the devil, has spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting. Then the temptation of the enemy came. And uh, after that, the Bible says in Luke chapter 14, verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. So I want you to notice that Jesus didn't start doing miracles until after the Holy Ghost came upon him when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. In other words, if Jesus healed and did miracles because he was the Son of God, why didn't he do them at age 25? Why did he have to wait till he was age 30 and the Holy Ghost came upon him and be baptized uh, when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River? And furthermore, if Jesus is here on the earth operating as the Son of God, who can anoint God? I've yet to find anybody that argues with this position to be able to answer that question. Who can anoint God? Jesus, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, laid aside his heavenly power and glory and he came to the earth as a man. So until he was empowered by the Holy Ghost, when he came upon him, the Holy Ghost came upon him, when John baptized him in the Jordan River, until that point in time, Jesus had no more power to do a miracle than you or I would have in and of ourselves. But it says... That because he's in power, he returns in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him and throughout all the region round about. Verse 15, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, that means as a child. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. I always like to point out that Jesus' custom was to go to church. I know that doesn't sit well with a lot of Christians nowadays, but that's what Jesus did. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. This is Isaiah 61, verse 1, beginning in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. First thing Jesus says when he goes into a new town, his hometown, the first time he's been there since he's been baptized and anointed by the Holy Ghost, baptized in water, anointed in the Holy Ghost, the first thing he preaches is that he's anointed. That's the first thing out of his mouth that we have record of in the Bible. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. Well, what is he anointed to do, Jesus? To preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now, here's why that, that uh, occurred. The reason why everybody is staring intently at Jesus, is, well, two reasons, I guess. One is he's going to say in a few verses down that they've heard of miracles that he's done in Capernaum. See, Nazareth is not the first city that he went to, not the first city that he ministered in after he was anointed of the Holy Ghost. He mentions himself that they're thinking, he says, I know what you're thinking. The same works that we've heard that you did in Capernaum do here too. Well, if that means, if that's what they're thinking, then he's had to have done some works and miracles and healings in, in Capernaum, right? So that's one of the things, one of the reasons that they're staring intently at him is because they've heard that he's done miracles in Capernaum already. We'll prove that when we get down a few verses and read it to you. The second reason is because they've been uh, taught in the synagogues, the Jewish rabbis would have taught the people very well to know this portion of Scripture. This Scripture, or these Scriptures, these verses that he reads from Isaiah 61 in our Bible correspond to the Messiah. And so for Jesus to take Messianic scriptures, Messiah scriptures, everybody is looking at him. Now, here's a miracle worker that they've heard about. They haven't seen anything out of it, but they've heard that he's a miracle worker. And now they hear Jesus talking scripture, reading scriptures about the Messiah. Everybody is wondering, what's coming next? And the next thing Jesus says is the crux of the whole thing. Jesus said, after he had everybody's attention, he began to say unto them, verse 21, this day, everybody say this day, that means the day that Jesus was there, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. 
In other words, as King James speak for Jesus saying, these verses of scripture are talking about me. Jesus has just identified himself in this one phrase, this one verse. He has just identified himself as the anointed one, the Messiah. The anointed one means the Christ. He's just identified himself as the one that Isaiah was prophesying about that would have the spirit of the Lord upon him to anoint him for the purpose of anointing him to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the broken heart. He's anointed to preach. He's anointed to heal. He's anointed to preach deliverance to the captives. That means to to set everybody free that's been bound by anything and everything in their life, to set at liberty them that are bruised, those that are wounded, those that have been wounded by the works of the devil in their own lives and the effects thereof. He's been anointed to set them free. He's been anointed to, to preach uh, uh, deliverance to the captives and, and uh, the opening of blind eyes. Notice he says that he's anointed to do these things. And then the last one is to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, everybody under the, under the old covenant, every Jew anywhere in that day would know that the acceptable year of the Lord is the year of Jubilee. One of the things that it says about the Messiah is that he would come with such power, such anointing, such uh, equipment, supernatural equipping of the Holy Ghost to restore all things to their original position. Now, in the Jewish uh, custom, the Jewish history, God set aside one day out of every 50, or I'm sorry, one year out of every 50. Every 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee meant all debts went, were canceled out. It means everything reverted back to its original possession. If you hit the year of Jubilee and you were over your head in debt, all of a sudden, you were a free man from any and all of that debt. Everybody's debt was canceled out. In other words, the year of Jubilee is a fresh start. Jesus is saying, and everybody understood this, that the Messiah would come and give a fresh start to mankind. And when Jesus says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, he's saying, I'm here to restore everything that's broken. I'm here to put back in order everything that's been uh, everything that's in disorder. I'm here to restore the broken hearts. I'm here to restore broken bodies. I'm here to put back in right place with God everything that's been broken by sin. It's the crux of the whole thing. Now let me ask you a question. What did he preach in Capernaum? Is there any reason to think Jesus preached a new message when he got to Nazareth? Keep that in your mind. We'll answer the question as we go. But keep that in your thoughts. Because Jesus, when he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, he's literally saying, I'm the Messiah. Well, now think about if you were one of the people that were in Nazareth at the time and you heard about the miracles and the healings and the great works that he's done in Capernaum. Your, one of your earlier thoughts would be, well, that fits. The Messiah was going to come and going to do miracles. He's going to do signs and wonders like no man has ever done before. The things that we've heard that Jesus did in Capernaum just a short time before, maybe days, maybe weeks before. That would certainly fit what he's saying. But then their doubts creep in. They all bear him witness, verse 22, and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, folks. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? In other words, their first thing, the first thing out of their mouths, no matter what they're thinking, no matter what they've heard about Jesus, no matter how uh, confirmed the, the miracles and so forth that they've heard about in Capernaum have been, it's just a short distance away. Some people may have even traveled back and forth to Capernaum in the time that Jesus was there. There may be eyewitness testimony in Nazareth saying, yeah, well, he really did heal the sick over there. The first thing out of their mouth is he can't be the Messiah. We know his daddy. And everybody in, in, in Jewish culture understood that the Messiah was to be born of a virgin. And they were fooled by knowing that Jesus had grown up with an earthly father. And so rather than saying, wait a minute, Jesus, hold on. How does this work? They just said, that can't be right. Their knee-jerk reaction was unbelief. You need to be careful what comes out of your mouth, especially the first thing that comes out of your mouth. I had a friend in Bible school that used to say that out of the abundance of the heart, well, the scripture says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He used to change that around and say out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth slips. There's a lot of truth to that. Then Jesus says to them, 
I know uh, you will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. Now notice that God understands how people think. It may be a surprise to us, but it's not a surprise to God. Jesus is saying, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, since you did miracles in Capernaum, prove who you are by doing them here. Now, folks, how close is that to the modern-day church attitude toward Jesus and miracles? Pretty close. Most people say, well, if gifts of healing still work in the church and if if Jesus still heals today like he did when he was here in his earthly ministry, then why doesn't somebody just go into the hospital and clean it out, just heal everybody on every floor? And see, they think the same thing that the people in Nazareth thought when, they were here, when Jesus was here on the earth. Now, another thing the church world seems to think very uh, greatly is that if we were just here when Jesus was here on the earth, then we could get results from him. Yet these people get no results from him. Because their attitude is the same thing as what m- much of, maybe most of, the church world thinks today. If Jesus still heals, why didn't he heal everybody now? For the same reason that he didn't heal everybody then. They wouldn't believe. Jesus said, I know what you're thinking. You're going to say unto me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. The same things we've heard that you've done in Capernaum, do here. Well, they've heard about them in Capernaum then, haven't they? And he said, verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Then he says some things about Elijah in the days of Elijah and Elisha and so forth. Notice the end result of what he said to them in verse 28. They were not blessed. Verse 28 says, And they, they, all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill, whereupon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. They wanted to kill the guy. It's not enough to disagree with the truth. You've got to kill the people speaking it. That's the devil's way, folks. see a lot of that in our culture today, don't we? There's no debate on ideas in the political arena, in the social arena, or anything else. The whole idea is if you disagree with the, the, the current opinion today, you have to be silenced. You have to be shut up. But he, verse 30, but he passing through the midst of them went his way and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. It's interesting that he goes back to where he got results. Now, did you turn to Mark chapter 6 too? Look within Mark chapter 6. Let's read these stories and show the parallels, show that they're the same story. We'll start in verse 1 to get the context. And he went out from thence and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. Well, we know Luke told us what he taught. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him? That even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. Well, what mighty works are they talking about? The things they'd heard about in Capernaum. You're going to see it's not mighty works that are done there in their city. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. You see, it's the same story. They said, wait a minute, we know his family. He can't be who he claims he is. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what he preached. Luke did. Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus preached, first and foremost, I'm anointed of the Holy Ghost to do great things, to heal the sick, to set people free, to open blind eyes, and so forth. Luke tells us that. Mark doesn't give us that detail. But Mark gives us some details that Luke doesn't. Verse 4, But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. Now notice verse 5, and he could there do no mighty work. Everybody say the word could. Notice it does not say he would there do no mighty work. It doesn't say he won't or wouldn't. It says that he could not. In other words, that means he was unable. Now I know that cuts crossways with a lot of people's idea about Jesus and the way he ministered, but that's what the Bible says. Now I've done extensive study on this word could. You know what it means? It means could. There's no way you can misinterpret this. There's no way you can twist it around. There's no way you can give some kind of other translation that comes up with something else. The word means one and only one thing, and that means could. And he could there do no mighty work. This means Jesus was unable to do miracles in Nazareth. Now think about that. He was able to do them in Capernaum. 
So much so that after he leaves town, he goes back to Capernaum. But he couldn't do any miracles or mighty works in Nazareth. Now, why couldn't Jesus? What was it? What could possibly get in the way of the power of the Son of God, the Holy Ghost anointed Son of God that's anointed to heal the sick and open blind eyes and set captives free and deliver people and, and so forth, restore everything back to original order? What in the world could possibly stop Jesus? And he could there, verse 5 again, and he could there do no mighty work save or except that he laid his hands upon a few sick folks and healed them. We'll get back to that in a minute. Verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Why? Because he's trying to get people to believe. Now, what was the difference in the people in Capernaum and the people in Nazareth? The people in Nazareth refused to believe that he was anointed by the Holy Ghost. They refused to believe that he was an anointed one. What did the people in Capernaum believe that enabled them to get miracles and healings and so forth? They believed Jesus was the anointed one. Jesus could only get results if people would believe what the Bible said about who he was. And Nazareth is is the place where Jesus had the most trouble. And the reason that he had the most trouble in Nazareth, the reason he was hindered in Nazareth more than any other place that we have record of is because they thought they knew him from his past. Folks, the anointing of the Holy Ghost changes everything. The Bible speaks of people that that found Jesus and... and, um, entered into what Jesus had for them to do, and it was like they were turned into other men. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament about certain men that the Holy Ghost would come upon. Now, he couldn't be inside anybody in the Old Testament, but he could come upon them for a specific work for a specific period of time. And it says in many cases that it was like they were turned into other men. They began to prophesy, and it was like they were turned into another man. The Holy Ghost changes everything, and he's supposed to. Now back to verse 5. And he could there do no mighty work. In Nazareth, he could there do no mighty work. He was unable to do any mighty work because they wouldn't believe that he was anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. They wouldn't believe that he was anointed to heal the brokenhearted. They wouldn't believe that he was anointed to preach deliverance to the captives. They wouldn't believe that he was anointed to preach, uh, to set at liberty them that are bruised. They wouldn't believe that he was anointed to open blind eyes. And they wouldn't believe that he was anointed to preach the acceptable year of the Lord or the year of Jubilee. They wouldn't believe that. It wasn't that they couldn't believe it. They refused to believe it. They were able to believe it just like the people in Capernaum did. I'm sure the people in Capernaum, when they first heard Jesus, had their doubts too. But they went along with it. They didn't voice it. They didn't raise opposition. They didn't say, well, no, we refuse to believe like the people in Nazareth did. And whatever doubts they may have had to start with were overcome. Maybe little by little. Maybe all at once. I'm not sure. Nobody could know for sure. But their doubts... If they had any, were overcome and Jesus got miracles. Now notice the last part of verse 5. That's really what I want to talk to you about. And he could there in Nazareth do no mighty work, save or except he laid his hands upon a few sickly folks and healed them. Now the word sick, if you look that up, the word sick is derived from another Greek word that means sickly. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says of this word sickly, that it means folks with minor ailments. It also means infirmed. In other words, people that didn't have too much wrong with them. One translation translates it just that way. The only thing Jesus was able to do, he wasn't able to open any blind eyes. He didn't have any lame people healed. He didn't cleanse any lepers. He didn't have any mighty works or signs or miracles in Nazareth. The only thing that he was able to do is get a few folks with minor ailments healed. Now, what I want to talk to you about is those few folks that got something. We're, we're quick, and I'm, I'm big on teaching the importance of faith and that unbelief hinders God then, it'll, it'll hinder God now, and so forth. But what I want to talk to you about is faith in the midst of unbelief. What about these people that got something in a city that refused to believe? They bucked the tide and accepted healing for whatever minor ailments they had. Your faith will work if you outlast the devil. I remember Terry Mize told me that T.L. Osborne told him that when he first went to the mission field. You know who Terry Mize is and you know who T.L. Osborne is, I hope? 
T.L. Osborne preached face-to-face with more, with more people in person. He preached to more people than anybody that's on the planet. With the possible exception, Reinhard Bach, he may be catching up. But certainly in his day, he was far and away beyond anybody else that had preached the Word of God in person with the number of people that he did. There was nobody that was even close to the miracles that he had on the mission field. And T.L. Osborne told Terry... When Terry first started off on the mission field, T.L. told Terry, he said, Terry, one thing you always need to remember, stay until the devil leaves. Stay until the devil leaves. Now, it's interesting with a man in a ministry like T.L. Osborne that had healings and miracles and blind eyes opened and and some of the, I mean, we could stand here all night and tell stories about the stuff that he had and that uh, happened in his ministry and the stuff that he saw. And he never laid hands on anybody. T.L. Osborne never laid hands on anybody. He pioneered the idea of praying for people in mass. He'd give an altar call and give people to, get people to give their hearts to Jesus just by lifting their hands and leading them in the prayer and through an interpreter. And uh, then he'd say, all right, now who needs healing? He'd have everybody that needed healing raise their hands or lift something, you know, give some kind of indication. And he'd pray one prayer over the whole multitude. And many times it was a million or more people gathered together. And all of a sudden people started getting healed right and left now it's interesting that a man that would have those kind of healings and we always associate healings and miracles with instantaneous stuff it's interesting that that would be the advice that he gave a young missionary always stay till the devil leaves because he found found out a secret he found out a truth and that is even a miracle doesn't always happen instantly there's always going to be a resistance and if that's true in in our day We have to assume that it worked the same way with Jesus because Jesus worked with the same healing power that we work with today. He said so. The works that he did, we would do also in his name. That means same power, same Holy Ghost, same anointing, same work, same principles, same principles of faith to bring the miracles about, same hindrances of unbelief. So we have to assume that there's oftentimes resistance from the devil that maybe the Bible doesn't even tell us about. And that would make sense if you think about it. God's not going to magnify what the devil does. But we always read the stories of Jesus and we see instant results in anything and everything that he did or almost everything that he did. And so we assume that somehow the devil's raising up a bigger ruckus and and hindrance and, and obstacle against us, resistance against us than he did Jesus. Well, if that's true, T.L. Osmond didn't know anything about the power that Jesus ministered with. Because he said that you always have to outlast the devil. Always have to outlast the devil. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 15. Let me show you another example of this. We've got a bunch of them. We won't take time to look at them all. Because I know you need to go home before midnight. So I promise to get you out by midnight. But notice in Matthew chapter 15. Let's start reading in verse uh, 21. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. So you can see there's a lot of things that have happened between uh, the first part of verse 23 and the last part of verse 23. It tells us, it makes it sound like it's just a quick, easy operation here. Woman hears about Jesus walking down the road with his disciples, cries out, Lord, have mercy on me. And then Jesus doesn't answer and that's it. Next thing the disciples say, Lord, you need to get rid of her. Well, why are they beseeching Jesus to get rid of her? Because they've tried to get rid of her and they can't. You need to realize that one of the main responsibilities of Jesus' disciples was crowd control. They thought they were the gatekeepers for anything and everything Jesus They were the ones that forbid the little children on one occasion to come to Jesus. And Jesus found out about it and said, stop that. Let them come. That's part of what the disciples did. They thought they controlled who could have access to Jesus. And this woman is so persistent. This woman is so determined to have an audience with Jesus that the disciples have tried to get rid of her and they can't. So what do they do? They go to their boss and say, Jesus, could you get rid of her? In other words, Jesus, could you do our jobs for us? We've tried to get rid of her. We can't. 
Tell her to go away. Tell her something to get rid of her. Do something. I don't know what they thought he was supposed to do. But Jesus answers and says, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, I need to stop here and explain something about Jesus' ministry. First half, Jesus spent three years of, of earthly ministry, in earthly ministry. The first half, roughly the first half, the first 18 months, a little bit more than 18, but not much more. But the first half of Jesus' three-year ministry was spent on the Jews. After that, the Jews wanted to kill him. That's the point where the Bible says Jesus walked no more in Jewry, J-E-W-R-I-R-Y. He walked no more in Jewry. In other words, that means he didn't minister. He didn't go into Jewish towns any longer. Well, then where did he go for the next 18 months? He went to Gentile towns. He went to Decapolis. He went to Bethsaida. He went to Chorazin. He went to the coast of Tyre and Sidon. He went into Canaan. He went outside of Jewish territory. Why? Because they rejected him. Jesus said himself, because you've rejected me, because you rejected the one that God sent, I now go to the Gentiles. So the last half of Jesus' ministry, with the exception of the very end, the very last couple of weeks, you see Jesus ministering primarily to the Gentiles, but he hasn't started that part of his ministry yet. He hasn't started that phase of his ministry. That's why when she cries out to Jesus again, Jesus said, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, he's saying the Jews haven't completely rejected me yet. You're early. Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows that the Jews are going to take counsel against him to kill him. And from that point on, he's going to turn away from them because they reject him. That's the ultimate rejection is them planning and plotting his death. So Jesus is is in a place that's outside of, of Jewish territory, if you will, if that's a good way to say it. And she comes to him to get something that she could easily get sometime later. But he hasn't entered that phase of his ministry. So he said, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's not the part of the ministry of my ministry that I've entered into yet. So what does she do? Does she make an appointment to come back in a month? What does she do? She couldn't care less about the Jews rejecting Jesus. She couldn't care less about someday Jesus will be sent to the Gentiles. She couldn't care less about God's timetable. She comes and worships him. Well, folks, if you want to know something about God, you want to know something that reaches the heart of God, this is it. She doesn't argue with Jesus. She doesn't try to, well, she will make her case in a minute, but she doesn't try to make the case that she shouldn't have to wait. She doesn't try to do anything about what Jesus is called to or discuss it in any way whatsoever. She simply comes and worships him, saying, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Let me ask you a question, folks. If Jesus, at the direction of his heavenly Father, to reveal to us the will of the Father, that's the whole reason Jesus is here on the earth. If Jesus, at the will of the Father, and to reveal his will is willing to upend his timetable for one person who worships him and asks for his help, how hard should it be for us to receive healing today? He's your father. For this woman, God was somebody that she didn't know. All she knew is that Jesus is doing healing miracles. He's doing them for other people. Why can't he do one for me? You've got so much more than she had. You've got so much more of a relationship. You have a relationship with God where she didn't have one. There's so much more opportunity for you to receive your healing, receive your miracle, receive your deliverance, whatever it is that you need than she ever had. You see, people read these stories with a religious point of view. They read this story and say, yeah, but that was Jesus. Well, who's Jesus now? Doesn't the Bible say he's the same yesterday, today, and forever? Doesn't the Bible say he's as close to, to us as the use of his name? Didn't Jesus say, my name brings me on the scene? He's closer to you than he was to her. Just because you can't see him physically doesn't mean he's not here. Are you out there? Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. 
Now Jesus is going to try to prove his case. In other words, he's saying right now the healing and deliverance that will eventually be available to the Gentiles, even in my earthly ministry somewhere down the road. I don't know what the timetable is. We don't have the chronology of how, how deep into Jesus' ministry this event occurred, so we can't say with certainty. Whether it's a month, whether it's a year, who knows? But even the healing and the miracle and the deliverance that will be available to her while Jesus is still here on the earth, Jesus said, right now it still belongs to Israel because they haven't completely rejected me yet. They haven't turned me out and refused to accept what the Bible says about who I am. So he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. Now, what does he mean when he says children's bread? Well, she's looking for deliverance. She's looking for her daughters to be her daughter to be delivered. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. She's looking for deliverance from the work of the devil in her daughter's life. Jesus calls that the children's bread. The children's bread. The children's bread. Where does the Old Testament, and Jesus is operating under the Old Covenant. Everything prior to the cross is the Old Covenant. So Jesus is operating and ministering healing and deliverance under the Old Covenant. Where under the Old Covenant does it ever say that the Jews were God's children? And silence filled the room. You know why? Because never is Israel called God's children. They're called the children of Abraham. They're called the children of Isaac and Jacob, but never God's children. Because Israel is called under the old covenant servants. The term children comes in where people are concerned and God is concerned only after the cross. God becomes our father. The first thing Jesus says to Mary after he's raised from the dead is tell the disciples, go tell the disciples that I go to my father and your father, my God and your God. First time ever, Jesus said, now God's your father. Now, Jesus has been telling them that God is his father all throughout his earthly ministry. But even when he taught them to pray the Lord's Prayer, what's called the Lord's Prayer, it was really the disciples' prayer, our father which art in heaven, God wasn't their father yet. Couldn't be without the blood of Jesus. Impossible. So when Jesus says that healing and deliverance is the children's bread, who does it belong to? We know that he's using an example, but the literal meaning of the words that he uses, he's not saying that healing belongs to Israel, although in this case he's saying Israel hadn't rejected me yet, so I'm sent to the, only the house of Israel so far. But the children's bread that includes the healing and deliverance that Jesus is referring to is yours, not Israel's. So Jesus said, it's not right to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs, what a pleasant thing for him to say. It's not right to take what belongs to Israel right now and to cast it to dogs, Gentiles. But notice she doesn't get offended. Folks, please understand something. You cannot ever, under any circumstances, get offended at the word and expect to get results. There may be things you don't understand. A lot of things I don't understand. But I refuse to get offended in anything I don't understand. I just realize that the, the things that I don't understand show how stupid I am. And thank God he doesn't require total intelligence to receive. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing if God required intelligence to receive from him? Do you know how few Christians would ever get anything? But instead he requires faith. And anybody can believe. Faith is a choice. Faith is not an ability. Faith is a choice. So she refuses to be offended at the words. She refuses to be offended at what Jesus called her. She refuses to be offended that Jesus said, what you're asking for doesn't belong to you yet. She refuses to be offended. She takes Jesus at his word and makes it apply to her. She says, truth, Lord. Folks, that's key number one. Everything Jesus says is true. She doesn't try to argue with him and say, well, now that's harsh. She doesn't say, Jesus, that doesn't, doesn't always work that way. Or shouldn't always work that way. I know a lot of people that feed their dogs really well from the table scraps. She didn't try to prove her point from that standpoint. She said, truth, Lord, yet. Even the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And Jesus said, answers and says unto her, O woman, great is your faith. What makes her faith great? 
She refused to give up. She outlasted any hindrances and every hindrance in her way. And in this case, it wasn't even the devil that was in her way. It was Jesus' timetable for ministry as established by heaven. He said, O woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you, even as you will. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Let me ask you a question. How many other people in the coast of Tyre and Sidon believed anything? Wonder what anybody thought if she told her friends. I wonder if she dared tell her friends. This is a woman that comes apart and comes across to Jesus, comes to Jesus with great faith in the midst of an unbelieving region of the country. Now she heard of Jesus. She heard of what Jesus has done in Jewish territory. We don't know where. We don't know exactly what. But otherwise she wouldn't have come to Jesus when she heard that he was out there. Or that he was come to that place. But here's a woman that believed and stood alone. And Jesus identifies that she developed great faith in the midst of unbelief. There's nobody preaching Jesus. There's nobody teaching the word in her town or in her area or in her region of country. Nobody is telling anything. She went only solely by whatever she heard of Jesus and she turned it to herself to accept personally. You know, it's an amazing thing to me. You talk healing to people and you'll tell them stories about people that have been healed on their own faith and and the natural reaction out of nine out of ten people, it seems, is to tell you why it won't work for them. I've had people come up to me and say, well, Pastor Mike, I want you to pray for my healing. I said, all right. What are we believing? She said, well, I just figured if God wanted me to be healed when you laid hands on me, then I'd be well. And if not, then I won't. I said, well, I can't pray for you under those circumstances. You wouldn't get anything and you'd go off blaming God. And then I start telling her people, telling her about people that have similar situations or circumstances or sicknesses that they were healed from. That, yeah, well, but I just don't believe that'll work for me. Why not? Well, I don't know. I just always had the idea that God put this on me for some special reason. Well, then what are you trying to get rid of it for? Well, I'm just tired. I've suffered with this so long. And they'll find every excuse, every reason in the book and make up their own book to come up with more for why the word can't work for them. This woman did exactly the opposite. And I'm sure without a shadow of a doubt, it's the reason Jesus identified that she had great faith. She's got nobody to encourage her. She's got nobody to lift her up. She's got nobody to to tell her, well, here's what the word says because they don't know what the word says. She's got nobody to tell her, yeah, well, I heard this story about when Jesus was in Capernaum and, man, he had blind eyes open and healed lepers and there were 10 of them that that got healed when they were on their way back to the temple. Man, this guy is something. She is standing on her own with no sense of support whatsoever and still refuses to give up, refuses to be offended and refuses to give up. Now, here's what real faith will do. Real faith will change even God's timetable. It did with Jesus. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 8. Let me show you another example real quick. Mark chapter 8. Let's start reading in verse uh, 22. And Jesus came to Bethsaida. Now, Bethsaida is um, in uh, Jewish territory. But he came to Bethsaida, and they brought unto him a blind man, and he besought, and they besought him, the ones that brought him, I guess, besought Jesus to touch the blind man. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked if he saw anything. Now, I've got to turn to another verse of Scripture here real quickly to show you why Jesus took this guy out of town. It is in Luke... Chapter, uh, let's see, let's see, Luke chapter 10, verse uh, 13. This is when Jesus sends his disciples out. He sends them to preach and to what and go into whatever city they, uh, they enter if they receive you. Uh, Take what's offered to you and heal the sick that are therein and say the kingdom of God is coming to you. Now, he tells his disciples what the, the situation is. Now, Luke 10 has happened before Mark 8. 
And here's what Jesus says about where they're supposed to go and where they're not supposed to go. Notice in verse 13. Jesus said, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they were a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven, thou shalt be thrust down to hell. Now, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is pronouncing curses on Jewish cities. And he says that if the same works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, now he just came from Tyre and Sidon, we just read about in Matthew 15. That was a woman, a Syrophoenician woman in the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus said if the, if the cities and the regions outside of Jewish territory had the same miracles and the same healings, the Gentiles who know nothing about God, who have no profession that they care anything about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would have turned and sat, repented and turned to God in sackcloth and ashes indicating that the Jewish cities and towns wouldn't, even though, they sound, even though they saw and experienced miracles and healings. So what did Jesus do? Jesus finally got to the place. Now, please understand, this is the Son of God operating in the unlimited power of the Holy Ghost. Jesus turned his back on Jewish cities and said, we ain't going there anymore. Now, remember, Capernaum was where he started off. Capernaum was where he had great signs and wonders. The first part of his ministry, the, the early months of his ministry, he had more miracles in Capernaum than any other place. They received him, at least to the degree that he preached to them, and saw miracles and healings and so forth, but they didn't go any further than that, which tells us something about healings and miracles. They're not just to tickle your fancy. They're to cause you to believe and turn to God. So what did Jesus do? Jesus preached in Capernaum as well as Nazareth. I believe in every city that he went to for the first time. He preached the same message from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the sick and open blind eyes and, uh, and set captives free and so forth. He couldn't do any mighty work in Nazareth. Now, I skipped over this while we were there, but I hope you remember the story enough and I think it'll fit here. Notice what the anointing is intended to do. It's intended to produce signs and wonders and miracles. Jesus didn't get any in Nazareth, but it's designed to do healing miracles. In Nazareth, the only thing Jesus could do is get a few folks with minor ailments healed. But that's not what the anointing was sent to the earth for. That's not what Jesus was the anointed one to do then. It's not what Jesus is the anointed one to do now, is to heal minor ailments. Now, thank God for every healing that occurs. We, uh, when we ministered to the sick last Sunday night before I left the service, a lady came to me and she said, well, I want to let you know my back was in real great pain before I went up to be, be, have hands laid on me, and now the pain's gone. Well, thank God for that. Now, the fact that the, the pain disappeared, I'm not sure what you'd call that. In some senses, that might be a miracle. If it is, it's probably a low-level miracle. But I would consider just pain in the back somebody with not a lot wrong with them as compared to somebody in a wheelchair or somebody that's blind or something like that. Well, thank God for everything that's done, every result that occurs. And I don't mean to exalt one over the other, but the Bible does that. The Bible says that Jesus was anointed to do mighty signs and wonders and healing miracles. He couldn't in Nazareth. And he marveled at their unbelief. In other words, Jesus is marveling because the anointing is not able to do what it was designed and sent, set upon him to accomplish. Folks, you need to realize something. The anointing is sent to you in the name of Jesus to do a whole lot more than we ask God to do for us. But these towns in, Jew, in uh, Jewish territory wouldn't receive, even though they had miracles, even though they saw signs and wonders, even though the anointing worked to its full capacity in many of these towns. Jesus curses these cities and says to his disciples, don't even set foot in there. Don't even set foot in there. Folks, I want you to understand something. A lot of people that are looking for God to do miracles, to satisfy them, they're blowing smoke. They're whistling Dixie, as the saying goes. God gives you a chance to believe. There comes a point where God says you've had your opportunities. Either choose to believe because the word says so or reject it entirely. But you're not going to see any other works here. That's what he said in these towns. Notice Bethsaida is one of those. 
So, back to Mark chapter 8. We'll read the story again. Verse 22, And he came to Bethsaida, and they brought to him a blind man, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the, hat, by the hand and led him out of town. Why? Because Bethsaida has been cursed. Jesus is not going to do a miracle in Bethsaida. So what does he do? He leads him out of town. He ministers to him. Now, we'll get to him ministering to the guy in just a minute, and it's going to have some interesting aspects to it, at least in my opinion. You'll judge for yourself. But let me ask you a question. What would it be like to grow up in a town that Jesus has rejected? What would it be like to live in a town that had healings, had miracles, but Jesus has already cursed these cities and refused to go back into them? For the purpose of ministering. I mean, he's in the city now, but he's not doing anything. Won't do anything. So now here's a guy that comes to him and his friends beseech him or explain to Jesus, the reason we brought him to you is because we want you to lay hands on him and heal him. So Jesus leaves him out of town. If they didn't know their town was cursed before then, I think they got the message. Jesus leads him out of town. And when he gets him outside the city limits, he spit on his eyes. Now, I don't know if that had anything to do with the curse that's on the town or not. It's a different way for him to minister, isn't it? Jesus spits on his eyes and put his hands on him and asked him if he saw anything. Now, it's interesting. This is uh, an example or an event in, in Jesus' ministry, an occasion of healing, that's different than any other thing we have record of. And it's in one of the cities that is cursed. Is there a connection? I don't know. But it sure is an interesting thought, isn't it? He asked him if he saw anything. Now, what's the outstanding characteristic of Bethsaida? We know that Jesus has said that they've had signs and wonders and miracles in their midst. And if, the, if Tyre and Sidon, Gentile areas, heathen areas of the country had seen the same signs and wonders that Bethsaida had seen, the citizens of Bethsaida had seen and experienced, that they would have repented and turned to God in sackcloth and ashes. So what does that tell us about Bethsaida? Even though they saw miracles, they didn't believe in Jesus enough to repent and turn to God. They had faith for the anointing to work, but they didn't have faith to turn to God. Or maybe we'll say it this way. They didn't reject the anointing from working. They believed enough to keep from rejecting the anointing. But they rejected Jesus as Savior and Messiah. So Jesus asked this guy. You'll never find Jesus in another case of healing that we have recorded in the Bible. You'll never find him asking somebody if they get results. Ever. It almost sounds like unbelief. Jesus spit on him and laid his hands on him and asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. And he, after that, he put his hands again on his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away into his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell it to anybody in the town. Make sure nobody in town finds out about this. Now, what happens? It's almost as if Jesus tries to minister to the guy to see if he has faith. Because he asks him if he sees anything. And the guy says, well, I see a little bit. I can see a little bit of improvement, but things aren't clear. Now, some people try to spiritualize this. I see ministries and stuff like that. It just, I believe it means what it says. I'm not going to try to read some spiritual meaning into it. Because he just came from a town of unbelief. And Jesus had to get him away from the unbelievers. Now, why is that? Well, I think it's for two reasons. Reason number one, we've already covered. The town is cursed. And Jesus has already refused to do anything or let his disciples do anything in town. But the second reason is because unbelief will hinder you from receiving. But it doesn't stop you from believing. So Jesus gets him out of town, ministers to him, saw, saw uh, realizes that he's got at least a measure of faith, maybe not a great measure, but a measure of faith, to be, get improvement so Jesus lays his hands on him again and commands him to look up. Commands him to look up. Notice the difference in what Jesus asked him the first time and what he told him the second time. Verse 23, and he took the blind man by the hand <clears throat> and led him out of the town and when he put, spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. Do you see anything? Tell me how that's faith on Jesus' part. It's almost like Jesus expects the guy to be in unbelief. 
Jesus is asking, do you see anything? In other words, it's another way of saying Jesus asked him, did it work? Well, folks, if I ever lay hands on you and ask you if it worked, I'm trying to get you to say, uh, you to reveal whether or not you believe in something. Because if I'm really asking, did it work, then I didn't lay hands on you in faith. And the guy's operating in a measure of faith because he got a little bit of results. He said, I see men as trees walking. And after that, Jesus put his hands again on his eyes and made him look up. In other words, he commanded him to see. He commanded him to see. Why didn't he do that the first time? Now, folks, I'm flying by the seat of my pants on some of this. You've got to realize I don't have all the answers. I got a lot of them. I got the ones that the Bible reveals, but I don't have all of them. And this is one the Bible doesn't tell us. Why didn't Jesus command him to be healed the first time? It's almost, and this is my opinion, you judge it for yourself, but it's almost as if Jesus is expecting the guy to be in unbelief. Well, he's got a good reason to expect that. If that's true, he's got a good reason for it. He's already cursed the town that the guy lives in because of their refusal to believe. He didn't have to curse Nazareth. Nazareth didn't get anything to start with. Bethsaida is a different category. Bethsaida is a different category altogether. Second time Jesus made him look up. He sees a little bit of faith in the midst of the unbelief. In other words... This man's faith has outlasted the unbelief of those around him. Let me show you one final example. That's over in Mark chapter 5. Just turn back a couple of pages. Mark chapter 5. We'll start over in verse 21. When Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh or next to the sea. And behold, there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. Verse 24 through verse 30, uh, 25, excuse me, through verse 34, tells about the story of the woman with the issue of blood that interrupted Jesus on the way. We won't talk about that. But we'll pick up the story in verse 35. While Jesus yet spake to the woman with the issue of blood, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. Now I see this happening in this fashion. I see the report, Your daughter's dead. And Jesus jumping in immediately, instantly, before the man has a chance to say another word, before the man has a chance to let his grief nullify his faith. Now, what does his faith express? Verse 23, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Well, she's crossed that point. Now, by the time we get to verse 35, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. Now, I don't think the man is saying in verse 23, I want her to be healed, but if we don't make it in time, you raise her for the dead. I don't believe that's what he means. I believe that he means Heal her by laying hands on her. Come to my house and heal her by laying hands on her so that she can live a normal life and be restored to health. I believe that's what he's saying. I don't believe the thought of being raised from the dead has even occurred to this guy. He's in a hurry to get Jesus there before she dies. He knows she's close. She's at the point of death. So when the news comes in verse 35 that your daughter is dead, Jesus, in my thinking, the way that I see this working, is Jesus jumps in immediately and says, don't be afraid, only believe. In other words, don't open your mouth. Notice he doesn't say, don't feel anything. Notice he doesn't say, don't grieve. He doesn't say, don't have any emotions. He doesn't say anything like that. He simply says, don't be afraid, only believe. Now, how can you stop the emotion of fear from coming? Somebody explain that to me. Words are containers. He's just heard words that contain the death of his daughter. What would those words do to anybody? It would enable panic to grip your heart. I believe the fact that Jesus said, don't be afraid, only believe. Be not afraid, only believe. I think that means Jesus recognizes the natural reaction that all of us would have, which would be fear gripping our hearts. 
But Jesus is saying, don't let fear change what you said. Don't let fear change what you said. Folks, remember, faith is of the heart. Fear is not of the heart unless it comes out of your mouth. The only way that fear goes from the emotion to being a part of your heart or a part of your spirit is if you speak fear. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't talk it. Whatever you feel, don't talk it. And he suffered no man to follow him. Verse 37, Savior accepted Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Jesus stops the rest of his disciples from going with him. Think on that for a little bit. Wouldn't you hate to be one of the ones that were cut out of the group? And he came to the the house of the ruler of the synagogue and seeing the tumult and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he said unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they all laughed him to scorn. Now, why are they laughing? Because they know dead bodies when they see them. Jesus is speaking faith. Jesus is saying, this will not last. They took it to mean Jesus is saying, He's not, she's not really dead. Well, she is really dead. She really is dead. But faith can change even that. They laughed him to scorn. But when Jesus, then Jesus took action... What action did Jesus take when people laughed about Jesus' statement of faith that she'll wake and rise? What did Jesus do? He put out the unbelievers. He put out the unbelievers. Now, we just talked about several people in several situations. The woman with the issue of blood is a good example, too. We didn't cover her, but she's here in the fifth chapter as well. She's the only one in that crowd that we have evidence relieved anything when she reached out and touched Jesus. Well, she's not going to have a lot of fellowship among the rest of the people in the crowd, is she? She believed when nobody else in the crowd did that we have record of. Nobody else touched Jesus and got anything. We know that it's the touch of faith that works, not just the physical touch, which so many Christians seem to be waiting for and wanting. If only I could touch Jesus physically, then I could be healed. Well, if you touch him like most of the crowd did, you wouldn't. So we've seen the examples already in the scripture where people without any support, without any help, without any encouragement, without anybody to prop them up or or egg them on or uh, anything have believed and received from God. The Syrophoenician woman is an excellent example. She's got nobody. She didn't even live in a place where Jesus is being preached. And she turns out to have great faith. Folks, my point is very simply this. You can have whatever kind of faith you want to have no matter where you're coming from. No matter where you're coming from. But with that in mind, you need to realize that if you hang too closely around unbelief, if you don't overcome the unbelief that you're hearing, that faith will be diminished and destroyed. Why wouldn't Jesus raise this little girl from the dead in the face of all these unbelievers? Is Jesus worried about the unbelief of the the tumult, the people that are the professional wailers and weepers and all that kind of stuff that are in the synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue's house? Is he worried about his faith? No. He's worried about the fathers and the mothers. The father's the head of the household. He's already expressed the faith of the parents. Jesus knows that if you don't separate believers from unbelievers, and I'm not talking about saved and unsaved here. I'm talking about believers in the word versus doubters. Then it'll affect the believers. So Jesus puts them out. Jesus puts them out. He sends them out of the house. I'm sure that was not an easy thing to do. They laughed him to scorn again, verse 40. But when he had put them all out, he took the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entered in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha Kumai which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years, and they were astonished with great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given her to eat. Can I ask you a question? How are they going to keep that quiet? He just put people out of the house. Where do you think they went? They're still in the yard. They're not going anywhere. 
Especially when Jesus came in there and said something that sounded so foolish to them, like she's just asleep. They're not going anywhere. This is an important guy. He's the ruler of the synagogue of their town. They're not going anywhere. And Jesus charges them saying, don't tell anybody about it. Maybe he's saying, let them see for themselves. I don't know. Folks, Brother Hagin's story was that he had nobody that he even knew on the planet that preached healing. And God took one passage of scripture in Mark chapter 5, the woman with issue of blood. We skipped over her. But one part where Jesus said in verse 34, Mark chapter 5, verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you whole. And the Lord asked him a question. He said, did you notice that she was healed on her own faith? Brother Hagin said, no, I didn't notice that. Took him a while. He was still paralyzed. Took him a while or partially paralyzed at least. He had to turn back to Mark chapter 5 and he said it took him minutes if not hours to get control of his hand enough to where he could slide the pages across. But he got back to Mark chapter 5 and he read in verse 34, Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. And he answered the Lord and he said, yeah, it does say that. And Jesus said, if her faith made her whole, then your faith can make you whole. We talk a lot about unbelief being the hindrance to faith. But let me tell you something. Your faith will work even if you're having to stand all by yourself. If you'll outlast the devil. I wish I could have, well, I don't know. I started to say I wish I had a testimony or or had an experience where I had a miracle ministry. But I just don't have that. I, I, I think I'd like that. I've never had that, so I don't know. But I see other people have it, and I think, wow, wouldn't that be cool? I'm sure everything is different than the way that it looks, and that would be too. But at least at this point, I don't have a miracle ministry. If God sees fit for me to have that, if God sees fit to change things around, I'm all for it. The will of the Lord be done. But most of our experience, and don't get me wrong, we've had some things that happened instantly and, and that type of thing. But far and away, far and away, maybe it's because of the teaching ministry I have, I don't know. That's another thing I don't have an answer for. But I know this. I know that far and away the majority, the vast majority of results we get have gotten personally as a church family is because we outlasted the devil. Now, I'm trying to say this right. I don't know if there's any way to really say this right, but I'm trying to do my best. I'm not lifted up in pride about anything. I know exactly who I am. I know exactly who I'm not. But there's an aspect of outlasting the devil that takes stronger faith than getting instant results. But see, we always think about it the other way around. We always think the strongest faith gets instant results. Does it? Does it really? If that's the case, then the strongest faith is a burst of faith. And then nothing else is needed. Because that's the only way that it takes to get miracles. But there's an aspect of the strongest faith being the one that outlasts the longest. You go back and look at some of the Old Testament patriarchs and some of these guys that prophesied hundreds of years down the road what would happen with the 12 tribes of Israel and that kind of stuff. That was the gift of faith in operation. The gift of faith, a special manifestation of faith. Well, by a lot of people's idea about how faith works, if the greatest faith is getting instant results, then the weakest faith would be something that lasted out that long, wouldn't it? Yet even Paul said, by the Holy Ghost to prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Folks, things don't work the way that we oftentimes assume that they do. But I know this. I know that whether you have to stand alone or you've got help, your faith will see you through. But let me say it another way. If you don't have support, I wish support for everybody. I hope everybody has somebody that can encourage them in faith and help them to stay strong and stay steady. Worship God with them and glorify God before the answer comes. But even if you have to stand alone, your faith can always work. Your faith will always work. Never, ever, ever give up. Because heaven and earth will pass away, but the word will never fail. The only thing that can fail about God's word is you failing it. Because it'll never fail you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word.
What a privilege it is to believe you. What a privilege it is to stand in faith for things that seem to be impossible and maybe even show themselves to be impossible for long periods of time. Father, it's so much easier with experience. Having seen your faithfulness over time, it's so much easier now to believe without being worried about when than it used to be. Lord, we know you don't delay things. But we also know that you have a greater goal for us and a greater desire for us than even the physical results we want to see today. And that is for us to develop strength of spirit, to develop patience. But your word says that if we'll let patience have a perfect work, come to full fruition, in other words, we'll be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So, Father, we count it joy. We count it joy that your word is true. No matter how long we've been standing, no matter what it looks like, no matter whether the circumstances have gotten better or gotten worse, we count it joy. What a privilege it is, Father, to be joyful in the midst of tribulation, trouble, and adversity. What a privilege it is to see your word work over time. In some cases, time that's caused others to give up. Time that's caused others around us to give up hope for any results. What a privilege it is to count your word as joy, count your word as true, and therefore be joyful. What a privilege to stand in faith and see the result come to pass. Lord, we thank you that you said whatever we believe we receive when we pray, we shall have it. So we say that healing is ours. No matter what it looks like, no matter what the doctor says, no matter how long it's been, we say healing is ours. We shall have healing because we believe we receive it now. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Well, forgive me for going long. Didn't intend to preach that long, but I did. So I'll take that off of some service in the future. Maybe one minute per service. I don't know. God bless you. Have a great week. Thanks for being with us.